This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Teresa Jurgens Goal, author of the Innovation Answer Book. The word innovation is largely overused. My personal definition of innovation is bringing something new to customers that deliver value to them. And that might be new technology, it might be an old technology introduced to a new market, or it might be a different combination of features and attributes. All of that starts with having a strategy. And there are several levels to strategy. Most organizations, companies, firms have a corporate strategy, which is tied around growth goals, geographical expansion, those kind of things. 60 to 70% of CEOs put innovation as a top five priority. Hmm. On the flip side, 60 to 70% of CEOs do not think that their organizations are innovative. This is Teresa. She's a strategic innovation provider, an accomplished visionary and a result-oriented professional with extensive industry experience from creative research all the way to effective portfolio management through streamlined new product development processes. Prior to founding Global MP Solutions, Teresa acquired over 12 years of experience in leadership and management positions with ExxonMobil Chemical Company and a total of 16 years as a practicing chemical engineer. She has extensive experience leading successful teams managing the product development lifecycle and defining the portfolio strategy. Our joint passion for innovation and new product development led me to invite Teresa to my podcast. We explore the misconceptions about innovation, why many organizations are challenged to deliver innovation worth making a remark about, and what to do to remove the roadblocks. By listening to this interview, you will learn three things. Firstly, that innovation is not defined by what you think, but by what your customers experience. Secondly, Why our obsessions with our direct competition are causing the biggest conflict in the potential success of innovation. And thirdly, how one can avoid being disrupted by paying close attention to what's going on in tangential industries as much as your own industry. Teresa, thank you for making the time available today and be a guest on my podcast. Thank you, Ton. I am very pleased to be here and thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, the invitation came through another podcast, and I forgot the name. 
Brian McNeil. Exactly, Brian McNeil. That's the person that I spoke to about analytics in terms of yeah the approach and, and use of analytics and innovation. And he pointed me at you, and I've in the meantime received your book, so thanks for that, the Innovation Answer book, which you have launched October of 2019, October of last year. Yes, and it's available on Amazon. That's very good. So people that, that want to get a yeah, get all the answers around innovation, go and buy a copy of that. So, but yeah, I mean, the, the reason why I was intrigued with that is because, well, the majority of my audience is in the business software industry. It's, I mean, that whole industry, of course, is loaded with the word innovation. And from my perspective, just to kind of open the door and kind of <laughs> make a provocative statement from my end, I think the whole word of innovation is way overloaded. People call things innovation that are possibly new features for them and for their product, but by no means new in the market. What is your perspective on that? I agree with you completely that the word innovation is largely overused. My personal definition of innovation is bringing something new to customers that deliver value to them. And that might be new technology, it might be an old technology introduced to a new market, or it might be a different combination of features and attributes in a product, service, application, or program that hasn't been done before. And secondary, innovation must bring value to the organization. And I usually phrase that as profit to the company. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's an interesting angle as well. I see a lot of organizations either follow a customer-first approach and really do everything for the past for the customer to solve their problem in a remarkable way. I also see a lot of organizations that are profit-first, revenue-first, and then the customer comes sort of last. So that's an interesting angle as well. But my perspective is if, if, you, if you treat the customer in the best possible way, you help them create difference with innovation, then all the other things will follow automatically. So what is your experience on that one? Yes, I totally agree. And I think that having only a customer first or profit first viewpoint would be very narrow and limiting. Yeah. My belief is that companies need to understand what customer needs are, gather customer insights before they start doing product or service development. But that does not mean that we just deliver features for customers that don't deliver profit. If it is not profitable to the organization, there's no long-term sustainability in creating that product or service application or program for sure. a marketplace. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Of course, at the end, it needs to it needs to contribute to well to an organization that's viable because that's at the end also what the customer expects from you that you that you're there five years down the road. <laughs> right, right, and the profit also serves to can have continuous development. Yeah. So a lot of companies turn those returns into investment for innovation, technology, market development for a next generation product or service as well. Yeah, that's an interesting one in itself. But I think we come to that later on. I'm following a little bit of the outline of your book. And I mean, I think that, that, that statement that you just made here is all about sustainability and ensure that you continue to, yeah, to be able to address the evolving marketplace. But starting on, on one of the questions in your book that you're answering, but I don't want to read it out loud, like what is an innovation strategy? First of all, I mean, how many organizations really do have an innovation strategy? Do you have any figures on that? I think that companies, so the format of the book is 
based on my years of experience in working with different organizations, yeah. startups and entrepreneurs often are in a learning mode, just learning what, what to do to deliver a product or service to a market. And then as they begin to grow and want second products or services or third or fourth products or services to go, they move into the adopting mode where they start to adopt processes that are repeatable. Uh -huh. They then transform into an organization that can select those innovations, if you will, into the most value added for both the customer and the organization. And then, of course, move into sustaining, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, so all of that starts with having a strategy. Yeah. And yeah. there are several levels to strategy. Most organizations, companies, firms have a corporate strategy, which is tied around growth goals, geographical expansion, those kind of things. An innovation strategy, and I do work with companies, probably the companies I work with might be on the high side of percentage of companies that have an innovation strategy because they're trying to transform and sustain their businesses. So, but I would say, you know, half of companies just off the top of my head have an innovation strategy. And that is specific to not just growth goals for the organization, which can come from mergers and acquisitions as well, or exactly. process efficiency, but around specifically designing new technologies, new approaches, new ways to solve customer problems. And those strategic objectives for innovation must be tied to the overall organization's goals as well as risk tolerance. Yeah, exactly. So 50%, that's actually quite low, I would say. I'm actually shocked by that. But I mean, I agree with you that, I mean, I think it has to do with the fact that a lot of organizations think they are innovating, where they're actually not. So it, it's also perspective about what you're doing yourself and how you're go, going about it. Yeah, so McKinsey has some data that's maybe a couple of years old saying that 60 to 70% of CEOs put innovation as a top five priority. <laughs> On the flip side, 60 to 70% of CEOs do not think that their organizations are innovative. True. Another statistic versus top of my head statistics is that marketers, something around 80, 80 to 85% of marketers believe that they are delivering innovative products and solutions to their customers. Whereas if you survey customers, less than 20% believe <laughs> that they're acting innovatively. So that's where I kind of fall into the maybe 50% of companies in general, probably 70%, 75% of companies I work with do have innovation strategies. Yeah, but that's at the end because they hire you. And then, then, <laughs> then, it's, then, it, then it's on the agenda. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> no, but, I, but I really like your comment about the, percent, the, the incredible difference in perspectives that companies have and that customers have. And that's exactly that, that issue of definition where the definition typically is we have a new product. We have never had those features before. Therefore, it's innovation. And where customers are saying, okay, well, you got this, you got this, this new product. Finally, you have it. What took you so long? <laughs> but I mean, talking about like the, what is the cause of this? I mean, that's another thing that you're addressing. What is causing organizations to have such low ability to innovate? I think it's, there's several causes. One is that a lot of companies use what's called a technology push strategy. Bob Cooper made that term, created that term maybe in the 1980s, 1990s. And that technology push strategy 
has a very high internal focus. So companies believe that because they have really smart PhD chemists and physicists and really smart marketers working for them, that they know how to develop products and services and applications. Mm -hmm. But when it's time to introduce that product or service into the marketplace, customers say, hey, we don't even know what to do with this. And so there's a, an outside-in versus inside-out viewpoint yeah. That, yeah. that causes a conflict and success of innovation. That's one primary element. So not, not understanding customer needs before you go to the lab to develop products and services. And you touched on the other one in that a lot of companies will say that because they're introducing a new feature or attribute to a product, that it is not an innovation for them. Yet those products and features are catch up to what's already going on by competitors in the marketplace. So an internal innovation program might be to develop a competitive feature or attribute, but it does not necessarily deliver something new or delightful to the general public. Let me make a small interruption here. Teresa just made an excellent remark about a misconception about innovation and what separates remarkable software businesses from the rest. And this is a topic I spent quite a lot of time on in my book, The Remarkable Effect. One trait of a remarkable software companies is that they create new value possibilities. And that means products or services that meet three basic criteria. They are perceived highly valuable and critical to their ideal customer, and they are delivered in a way that exceeds their expectations. Remarkable software companies are defined by 10 different traits, and closing gaps on those traits will turn your software business into one that your customers will find worth making a remark about as well. And if you want to know how to do that, I would recommend you to read my book, The Remarkable Effect. You can buy that on any portal where they sell books online. If you want to know, however, how remarkable your software business is on a five-star scale, simply do the anonymous test. You can find it on valueinspiration.com slash remarkableindex. Back to the interview. Yeah. That's in line with my, with my thinking. Another thing that I always see as well is it has to do with that short, yeah, how do you call it? Shortism, short-sightedness, looking at the competition rather than the market or the customer. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's the whole idea of blue ocean strategy that yeah, is true. also an idea out there. And companies are also very driven by the stock market. So they have true. to have short-term returns. And so they become very risk averse. And it's much easier to tweak or adjust or just add a little something to an existing product or service, call it an innovation, and launch it in the marketplace where you're nearly guaranteed returns rather than creating something unique and novel that meets unstated customer needs. So what do you mean there? The a lot of times customers, if you ask somebody, and I guess the classic story is if you'd have asked Henry Ford what you needed for transportation, or if Henry yeah. Ford had asked his customers what they need for transportation, they'd have said, oh, a faster horse. Exactly. They could not envision the idea of an automobile to get them from point A to point B. That's true. So the most disruptive innovations come from needs that customers can't necessarily state. We didn't know 10 years ago that we needed iPads. Steve Jobs identified this gap in the market that said, here's a tool, here's an, an application and a piece of hardware that will bridge the gap between our laptops and our cell phones and can 
bring our Kindles into one place so we can read books. And the, and the tablet was introduced from unstated needs. A lot of that comes from observation of customers. And back to your question about why do innovations fail or product development fail, a lot of times our companies, because of that inside-out view, we have all the smart people working for us. Yep. We don't talk to customers. They miss what is really going on with consumers and end users. Sitting beside a customer, watching them struggle through, in your industry, using a piece of software or using a piece of computer technology, understanding their, their struggles through that is what can really enlighten an innovation team or yep. product development team to the true needs that a customer has. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and then the risk of course is also that, well, going back to the example from Ford, the faster horse, that you allow customers to give you specifications because this right. is what the customer wants. And they actually give it you almost like, I want this screen to be that size with this button here. I've seen arguments like that without going into like, why do you need this? What is the problem actually? And kind of making that, making that more of an overall story to analyze. And maybe there's a completely different route than the, the thing that they are thinking to achieve that, which is at the end why the horse was taken out of the market by a car. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and that happens. That happens a lot. And continually tweaking, which is what we call sustaining innovation in, in the book, which goes to a Clayton Christensen term, those sustaining innovations can deliver profit on the short term. They satisfy the risk intolerance that many organizations, especially large companies, have, but they fail to deliver over the long run and fail to delight customers and create create the new opportunities that are truly innovative. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing. I mean, of course, you can always have the discussion, do you want to be a first to market? Do you want to be a fast follower? I'm not sure. What, what is your perspective on this? From my perspective at the end, is like that was possibly achievable 20 years ago. But today, with, with the advent of all the intelligent technology that is hitting the marketplace, once you have that first mover advantage and it clicks, you have such a, a long distance created between, well, your next competitor. Do you see that as well? Yeah, I think the data shows that first movers tend to have a greater percentage. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I'm remembering the numbers is like 60-70% of overall market volume and market share over the long term. So there's definitely an advantage to being first mover. On the other hand, one of the innovation strategies that we discuss is the prospector strategy. And a prospector company that follows that strategy just wants to be first, regardless of the consequences. So they can tend to have a lot of failures to get to that one success, which doesn't always mean that they're profitable. And this is where venture capital comes in. You know, they're making a lot of bets and hoping that one will win. The next strategy, which allows a company to balance both their operational effectiveness and be a fast follower, can be very successful for innovation, especially if they have scale of production or a quality improvement to that first mover product. Yeah, yeah, that's of course where the battle is going to be. Yeah, the, where the battle is going to be for the next coming years. I mean, there's so many products out there that are transaction-driven, process-driven, and now going to be data-driven. And they, there's so many things you can do with that. And the company I used to work for, we had this discussion always around, well, I mean, 
there was always this, this next user interface that we needed. And at some point in time, we started talking about like, why do we need the feature in the first place? Why can't it just simply be done, magically be done? Like the best, in, the best UI is no UI. And that turns the whole thing upside down because t today it's possible. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm not sure where AI and digital transformation are going to impact traditional innovation, traditional product development. There's a lot of anticipation for excitement in that arena. Yeah. Well, it's just, I think, another tool in your toolbox. And you have another way of, of addressing a problem that in the past you would address going this route and now you possibly well you have you have two options to go for doesn't always mean of course that that ai and machine learning and all these hype technologies are are the best answer to everything although a lot of people start to believe that but there's definitely more opportunities to to do things in a different way and i think that's where well where we can expect and, and start to enjoy a lot of new innovation talking about that word again well, talking about one of, the, one of the things in your book, you're talking about what is disruptive innovation. And I was having a kind of a thinking session with myself this morning, by the way, on, yeah, is it about, I mean, there's this thing between creating disruptive innovation yourself or possibly even being disrupted by it. And sometimes it's, yeah, when people and organizations get so complacent and, and so inner focused that they simply miss out on on things that are coming by that they could have picked up if they would have been more curious, be more empathetic with their customers. So how do you see that? Yeah, I think one of the things about disruptive innovation is that it's very difficult to identify a disruptive technology or a disruptive application before it happens. It, that's very challenging. But companies are disrupted the horse was disrupted by the automobile, exactly. as, we, as we talked about. And it's very important for companies to always pay attention to what's going on in tangential industries as much as their own direct industry. Yeah, exactly. So in the U.S., we have bookstores or used to have bookstores like Barnes & Noble and all kinds of, of physical bookstores. Sure. And they failed to notice that people were starting to read online with their yeah with their e-reader devices, and they completely missed that disruption and thought, well, we can just keep proceeding this way. Yep. Newspapers are being disrupted. There's, there's a lot of things being disrupted in industry by not noticing what else is going on yep. around you that might not be a direct competitor. So when I work with companies, I, when I talk about innovation strategy, I ask them to write down their top three competitors that are direct to them. Uh -huh. And then the more challenging exercise is to understand the top three indirect competitors. Yes. And of course, Amazon's an indirect competitor, I think, to everyone. To everybody. But there, there's a lot of other indirect competitors to how we get around. Uber has disrupted the automobile industry yep. as well. Do you really need to own your own car or can you get around with Uber or Lyft? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that is good. It's good to keep your eye and to do sometimes an exercise in terms of, okay, what is happening in industry X and how could we apply this to our own industry? Because, I mean, to see what Uber did to the taxi industry, of now it's, of course, it's obvious. We wouldn't know what to do without it anymore. But what else could be? And it's always good to do these, these, these exercises. What I also see, by the way, in terms of well, talking about innovation, I mean, at some point in time, something is an innovation. But... Then 
things evolve, whether it is in your same industry or whether it's outside it. Norms start to, to change in terms of what customers expect and, and what they get from, from other areas. So, the, I mean, I, I think it's called the, the, well, it's about the life cycle of the product and the half-life of the product, which is increasingly shortened. How do you see that impacting innovation cycles and the way the, the customers or organizations approach this? Yeah, that's, that's spot on. The product life cycle traditionally has four stages, starting with the introduction of the product to the market, yeah. where a company has had an investment in technology, market development, customer education. And then the first mover and the fast followers, that, that product begins to have growth. And there's more and more competitors coming into that market. And then the, the product will or market will mature. And that's the point when companies need to start looking at these disruptors, looking at what does innovation really mean? Does it mean adding new features to the product or service? Or does it really mean finding a new way to serve that customer need, fill a consumer's desire with a different approach? Then when products go in the fourth stage of the life cycle into decline, a lot of companies just fail to notice that. They'll keep throwing money at the problem, trying to improve their operations, and not notice that that decline is, is an interruption. It's very rare today that we get asked for a fax number. That product has completely declined out of the market. But if yeah. you go, if I go to my local office supply store or computer store, I still see fax machines for sale. Yeah, that's, I've just forgotten how to, well, to get rid of them from the counter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be true. Not my job. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. But how do you recognize that? What are symptoms that you typically see to say, hey, this is not a something that is normal this is a symptom of well the half-life of the product is actually there even it's, it's beyond that yeah so i think one is a lot of competitors two is that consumers are purchasing based on price rather than quality yep, or other true. differentiating factors and three might be a little more tricky for companies to follow but Consumer complaints, as people start to complain about sort of little things around products and services, means they're not happy anymore. If you go to a supermarket in the U.S., you will see something like 35 different types of toothpaste. Yeah. And there's very little differentiation between those products. Is toothpaste in the decline stage? Probably not, but there might be some opportunity that... I don't know yet of how to better clean your teeth rather than just adding different flavors to the toothpaste or adding more fluoride, et cetera. So there's, there's opportunities. And so if you walk down the, if you're in the retail market and you walk down the aisle of the store and see tons of competitors and tons of different products that are just small tweaks, that's a symptom of maturity, perhaps moving into decline. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That is interesting. And I mean, it's also, I mean, I completely agree with you with the fact that sometimes you don't want to see it. You get complacent to it. And there is a lot of investment going into the product still and has, has gone into the product. And it's so hard to say at some point in time, enough is enough, let's start again. I mean, in my book, I'm talking about it as well, about entering a dead-end alley. And I mean, I've seen it in my previous, my previous job as well. I mean, that you have a product that is of age, but it's still... It's still selling and you're still competing and you're still winning, but 
deep in your heart, you know, it's like we should possibly start over again. But then, you know, starting over with, with such an investment, it's such an incredible, yeah, a big leap to take. Yeah, and companies, if they do start to see those signs, the other alternative is to just abandon that product in that marketplace. Yeah. If it's no longer profitable and no longer attractive and is no longer delivering towards strategic goals and objectives, it's okay to abandon it. We don't have to be married to our products for forever. Yeah. Well, of course, it, that, that saying goodbye to it is easier when you have something that's compelling to be replaced that with, or that could be your star, talking about the BCG matrix. So I mean, talking about the balanced portfolio, both from a product perspective, but also from how do you, what is your recommendation in terms of how organizations should divide and allocate their resources in terms of maintenance, new product development, and these, these bigger long-term projects to find that next big thing? So my answer is it depends. <laughs> it depends on the company's strategy and their tolerance for risk. Yeah. So a lot of companies, large, I come from the petrochemical industry, large petrochemical companies, especially the that are owned by oil, oil and gas companies are very, very risk averse. And sure. so they will have very long-term R&D programs looking at fundamental research and a lot of commitment to maintenance and operational excellence. Yeah. Companies that are faster moving, Google, Facebook, anything in the technology world will typically have a higher percentage of their portfolio committed to testing new products, prototyping, and they'll emphasize the D part of R&D a lot more than the R part. So it depends on the risk tolerance of the organization, the competition for that particular industry, how, how dense is the competition, or how open is the marketplace. Yeah. And then there's all sorts of political and economic and global factors that contribute to that balance as well. But each company needs to make that decision themselves. And I'll add that two companies can both be successful in one industry competing with very different portfolio balances. So one company may be very risk tolerant and put out a lot of new products with very new technologies, cutting edge type of technologies. Uh -huh. Whereas another company in the same industry can be competitive having just small tweaks to existing products. I mean, at the end, it has to do with all with the, the Roger curve, you know? Is, uh, yes. I mean, who do you serve? Is it the innovators and the early adopters or is it the, the early majority that are far more risk averse and that want to have something proven? Yes. And sometimes it's also also like that, that an organization doesn't know which customers they're actually serving, where they would be far better off serving the early majority with something that is that is reliable and and goes with yeah stability and so on, rather than trying to be addressing the innovators because they are not. I think that's dri driven a lot of the acquisitions in the tech industry over... Yes because a company like Microsoft or Google is so big that sometimes they can't have those cutting edge technologies. So they acquire these smaller startups and entrepreneurial yeah, firms true. that can be nimble enough to talk to individual customers and get that innovative side of things, refine it to the point, but can't cross the chasm in Jeffrey Moore language, can't cross yeah. that chasm. But when the larger firm acquires them, then they can address the early majority needs better. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, it always, of course, yeah, I think the word is all about depend and kind of figuring out your own strategy for that. What I really liked about, I mean, I was listening to a podcast from Tiffany Bova at some point in time, and she was talking to, I'm not sure who it was, but the whole argument was, well, it's about mindset and having the guts when you are growing fast and everything is, you got momentum that you then say, we're growing, let's change something. Because that's where you're at your top of your strength, where you're, you're able to do these things rather than to say, oh, everything is going fine. Let's now cut back and, and get the royalties from this up to the point where it's possibly too late. And talking about, you know, are you risk averse or not? But that risk averseness can also be, yeah, the Achilles heel to your organization then. That you then, because you are you are not fast enough and you didn't progress and you didn't keep the investment going, you're creating an even bigger risk to your organization than you possibly thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's in the book. So the learning organization that I uh-huh. talk about is an organization that is a startup or entrepreneur, maybe a small company that wants to understand what innovation is, what does that really yep. mean? And of course, there's lots of definitions. <laughs> I gave you mine. And what does, what does that really mean for setting up a strategy to just kind of get the company off the ground, understand customer needs? And then what you're talking about is that adopting stage. Once we've gotten one product out the door that is successful, how do we continue to grow the company without being too risk averse, without putting too much bureaucracy on people, but ensuring that there's consistency among products and projects, as well as having a repeatable process in place. So I started my career doing process development for implementing new product development processes, process improvement in petrochemical plants, et cetera. So I, and I love project management. My husband accuses me of planning our vacations to too many details. <laughs> so I'm definitely a planning type of person, but if your plans don't allow for adaptability and flexibility, you'll never grow beyond that risk adversity and you'll just be a company that makes a lot of copycat products and is a me too type of competitor, which of course hurts you over the long run and will not allow the company to recognize when those disruptors come into the market as well. Yeah, exactly. So, well, we're, we're reaching, well, actually we are already past the half hour. If you would give an advice to leaders, product leaders, CEOs of a company in terms of, yeah, the kind of the one or two things to challenge themselves on with regards to innovation, what would that be? I think my first piece of advice is to always understand the customer and to formulate your strategy around that ideal customer. And I think the other part is something that I'm a true believer in is lifelong learning. I think without an appetite and passion for continuous learning, innovation leaders will not be able to recognize when disruption occurs and they won't necessarily be able to recognize what customers want. There's no ivory tower. CEOs and creative directors cannot sit in their office and expect that they'll know what consumers want. You've got to get out, get your hands dirty, talk to other innovation leaders, understand where the market is going, understand your customers and truly have a passion for for lifelong learning. I completely agree with that. Nicely said. Well, thank you very much for this. This was, yeah, I mean, we, are, we, we could go on for hours on this. I love this topic. 
and there's so much more to talk about. But yeah, I mean, I want to keep it also short and concise, and I think we've achieved that. So thank you very much for this. People can, of course, go and what you said in the beginning, go to Amazon and buy your book, the Innovator Answer book. Anything to add to this? Anything to, I mean, where can people go, for example, to find out more about you? I'm on LinkedIn. And so that's, I love to connect with people on LinkedIn. And I also have my website at www.globalnpsolutions.com, the NP for new products, of course. And I, I will definitely connect with anybody. And I really enjoy the opportunity to talk with you today, Ton. Thank you very much, Teresa. And this finalizes our interview for today. I hope you enjoyed the insights that Teresa shared with us. And if you have any questions or thoughts, please let us know. If you like it and got inspired by this interview, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. And other than that, thanks for tuning into this podcast today. I had the honor to speak to Teresa Jurgens Kowal, author of the Innovation Answer Book. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.